Coming up on Garden Talk. As a general rule, we have found that about 80% nitrate and 20% ammonium keeps a very stable pH in the root zone. Organic fertilizers break down to the same exact elements that synthetic fertilizers provide. So chemically, there's no difference. But it's the stress that improves the terpenes, not the organics per se. So what that means is precision stress could lead to more terpenes. And especially precision stress can lead to more cannabinoids. If we put the plants in the dark, we're taking away their energy source to synthesize terpenes. Certainly lots of growers do this. So it's a common practice, but that just because it's common doesn't mean it's correct. What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, a.k.a. Mr. Grout, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk podcast. This is episode number 46. In this episode, I interview Dr. Bruce Bugby. He is a professor at Utah State University and the president of Apogee Instruments. In this episode, he gets deep into plant science, everything from synthetic versus organic, silica, flushing, soilless media, lighting, and so much more. Thanks to all of you who support this podcast through Patreon, if you'd like to support, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mrgrowit. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring zero cost for information about gardening, all plants, to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's episode who helped make that goal possible. Thanks to Dutch Pro for sponsoring this podcast. Dutch Pro products are now available in several countries across the world. For those of you that don't know, Dutch Pro is a plant fertilizer company that has base nutrients, additives, and pH regulators. They have different formulas of base nutrients for if you're in soil or if you're in hydro or cocoa. They also formulate their base nutrients for if you're using hard water or if you're using RO or soft water. I will leave a link to Dutch Pro's Amazon store down in the description section below. And you can use coupon code MrGrow10DP for a discount on their products. AC Infinity is a sponsor of the podcast. Coupon code MrGrowIt will get you a discount on their products. I've been using their Cloudline T6 and T4 inline fans for several years now, and I absolutely love the automation built into them. On the inline fans controller, you can have set points for high and low temperature, as well as high and low humidity. This greatly helps control my indoor garden environment, so the temperature and humidity stays in the ideal ranges. I will leave a link to AC Infinity down in the description section below. And don't forget to use coupon code MrGrowIt for a discount on their products. And we are back. Welcome to the Garden Talk podcast. Today I am joined with Dr. Bruce Bugby. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. So I am actually a student of yours. I'm enrolled in the cultivation certification that you offer at Utah State University, and I'm learning a ton right now. So, so much amazing science about the plant that we all know and love, and I feel honored to be able to learn from you, and I'm thankful for your willingness to come onto the podcast and share information today. So thank you for that. Yeah, happy to be here. Usually what we do is we'll start off with an introduction. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this space? Oh gosh, if, if we went way back, I, I got, I started in college in engineering. And, and for me, that meant building things and building boxes. And I got onto the idea of building plywood boxes to test different plant environment interactions. And this is a long time ago. And so I did, I built those boxes and a lot of other gizmos. And I go through graduate school 
I was at the University of Minnesota. Then I was at the University of California, Davis. And then I was at Penn State. So different degrees, different schools. And then my first job out of college was the position here in Utah, Utah State University. And I had the opportunity to early on to write a proposal to NASA for growing plants in space. That proposal got funded. And then as people say, the rest is history. I've been now here for 40 years working on plant environment interactions in growth chambers. And the, the 1980s, 90s, 2000s, all of this stuff was funded by NASA for food crops. And then the potential to work on botanical medicines came along and growers subsequently have funded our research growers and some lighting companies. Uh, so we, we got into a medical hemp research in uh, the last uh, four years and it plugs right into the large infrastructure we already have in the, in the laboratory. We have, we have something like 45 growth chambers here to in, you know manipulate environments for the plants and then and then the laboratory is connected to greenhouses so it's uh growth chambers and greenhouses adjacent to each other awesome let's jump right into the juicy questions so in your reddit ama that you did a few months back you said quote i'm not a fan of organic fertilizers in my opinion organic agriculture is not always good for the environment and it's not always good for human health other than that, organic is great for recycling waste back to gardens and farms. This recycling saved the planet, end quote. Can you elaborate on what you meant by saying that organic agriculture is not always good for the environment and not always good for human health? Yeah, I, I understand my, those, those were my comments and they still are. And I understand that shocked a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, they didn't, people didn't expect me to say that. Um, but I, I really got into agriculture because of organic agriculture. I mean, many decades ago, I was going to save the planet through better, more sustainable agricultural production. And this is in Minnesota, but I started growing vegetables and I had a little roadside stand and it was organic. And then I started studying it and I went back to school in agriculture. And let me start by saying the principles of recycling are just a gold standard. We absolutely need to recycle things back to agriculture way more than we do. It's a huge issue. And that is a fundamental tenet of organic agriculture. Recycle things back to agriculture, recycle the nutrients. So that's a, that's a terrific gold standard. Now we get into the details of doing that. And one example is um, manures, which we rely on heavily for nitrogen to recycle. They need to be recycled. But it turns out manures are very high in phosphorus. So if you put on manure to get the adequate nitrogen, this is composted manure now, so it's, it's safe. Uh, because of official organic uh, standards require significant composting to make sure it's safe. You can't just put fresh manure on. The, but you, you put manure on to get nitrogen and the phosphorus is way too high. And you do it again the next year and the next year and the phosphorus builds up to very, very high levels. And phosphorus is a serious environmental pollutant. 
So we have a lot of organic fields that are putting phosphorus into lakes and rivers. Now, what we really should do is put the manure on to get adequate phosphorus and find the nitrogen somewhere else. Then, then this problem would be gone and we'd be recycling manure and we, we could put it on a lot more fields too because there's ample phosphorus. But that's one example of the challenges of organic agriculture. And really it comes down to precision fertilization. Not too much, not too little, the right ratios of the nutrients at the right time. And that's difficult to do with organics. You can, you can sort of do it. You get um, rock phosphate and green manures. You know, we can, we can approach it. And certainly my, my colleagues are working on this at some other universities um, to recycle nitrogen, especially with green manures, growing a crop every other year, all those things. This is all wonderful stuff. But in the application of it, it nutrients become imbalanced and there's a, a danger to the environment. So th that's underappreciated by people that are enthusiasts for organics. The principle is good, but there's been big challenges in the application. Now, we can say that about conventional agriculture, too. I mean, we want to grow a lot of food, so we put synthetic fertilizers on. And there's nothing really wrong with synthetic fertilizers, but boy, do they get overused, too. So it's not like conventional farming is is all good and organic is bad. It's not that way at all. It's the applications of it are challenging. That's a long answer to the to the environmental part of this, but it's not always good to, uh, to in, our, in our attempt to recycle everything, we get nutrient imbalances that have environmental consequences. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. Synthetic fertilizers, they, they have a bad rep. You know, I think we're officially in the generation where organic growing is a growing trend. There are bad things about synthetic nutrients, such as the runoffs of nitrogen and phosphorus into lakes and streams causing toxic algae blooms, but there are also some good things about them, such as the fact that because of their invention, we can now feed the world. Can you talk to us about some of the pros and cons of synthetic fertilizers and maybe some misinformation that you've heard about them? Well, first of all, synthetic fertilizers allow precision fertilization. So as a principle, this is really a good thing. But now does every grower do precision fertilization? Oh man, is there a lot of examples of over-application of, of uh, fertilizers. Um, I listened to a talk at the National Agronomy Meetings uh, last month. It was uh, um, about a, a, one of my colleagues at the University of California, Patrick Brown, who was a, just a really good speaker. Well, no, he was a, given a keynote talk, but he was talking about fertilizing fruit trees in California. And uh, he made some joke about, if you don't know what you're doing, put a little moron. And moron having a dual dual meaning. <laughs> and people, people just kept putting moron. Um, and and there's, that's California agriculture of fruits and nuts and, and uh, vegetables. Uh, and, and they have a tough time getting growers to back off because they get paid by yield. They don't get, there's no penalty for polluting the environment. That's synthetic fertilizers that they're using. Um, the, 
After that, let's just take nitrogen. We get almost all of the nitrogen from fossil fuels. And it's called the Haber-Bosch process. Two German scientists uh, around World War I, both of them got a, the Nobel Prize. It's considered this great breakthrough of, of all of science. And they figured out how to make nitrogen fertilizer from the nitrogen in the air. And there's plenty of nitrogen in the air. And this is a wonderful thing. And this is what's allowed us to feed a whole bunch more people in the planet. But boy, does it take a lot of fossil fuels. So we need to recycle nitrogen. That's one, one of the actual projects we're do, working on right now with NASA is recycling nitrogen in a Mars colony. How are you going to get nitrogen on Mars? Well, they, don't, they have minimal nitrogen in their atmosphere, and it's so expensive. We recycle every molecule of nitrogen in this colony, and you're sitting here doing this research, and it's, my God, we need to be doing that on Earth. Um, hum, humans, we, we excrete 12 to 20 grams of urea per day in our urine. And all of it goes, it, none of it's recycled, just goes into landfills. And I envision the day when we're going to have small scale separators to separate the salt in urine from the nitrogen. And, and as, as unpleasant as it might sound, you can purify urine and get the nitrogen and put that right back in your garden. You, but none of that's done yet, but, I, but we need to do it. And if we keep saying, oh, put a little more on, then we're never going to get there with recycling. So the principles are rock solid. But what I don't like about organic agriculture is just this complete ban on all synthetic fertilizers. We don't often get to good places as a human species by banning things. We try to change behavior. So that's a challenge. But some hybrid between recycling through organics and, and limited use of synthetics, I think is a really good approach. That's super interesting. I actually came across a fantastic study that talks about what would need to happen in order to feed the world with, with organic agriculture. Long story short, switching to 100% organic production leads to further increases in land use between 16 and 33% in order to make up for the lower yields that organic growing results in. According to the study, it's on an average of 8% lower yields with organic agriculture, up to 25% lower yields depending on the plant. So I thought that was super interesting. I'll actually provide a link to that study down in the YouTube description section below for those of you tuning in on YouTube. The study is titled Strategies for Feeding the World More Sustainably with Organic Agriculture. And this was, this was posted in Nature's Communications. So definitely give that a read if you're interested in learning more about that. Now, there are some growers out there that say that the terpene profile for organically grown plants is better than with plants grown with synthetic fertilizers. Is there any truth to that or is that just a myth? As a scientist, I, I just say the data points in this direction. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say that's a myth, but I would say we don't have any good evidence to support it. And in spite of looking, we, we can't ever say it would never happen, but we don't have any evidence to support it. Um, as a general principle, 
terpenes and cannabinoids both are what we call secondary metabolites. That means they're not, the plants don't have to make them. The plant will grow just fine without them. But they, they, uh, the plants make secondary metabolites like lignin, make to, so they stand up straight and be tough. That's a secondary metabolite. You could grow a plant with all cellulose. So here's these secondary metabolites. And we know that if you stress plants, precision stress plants, they often make more secondary metabolites. So what that means is precision stress could lead to more terpenes. And especially precision stress can lead to more cannabinoids. Now, this is a very active area of research in my lab right now, precision stress of, of plants to improve quality. So when you make a broad, when someone makes a broad statement, organics improve terpenes, well, what's the mechanism for that? And there is a potential mechanism if the plants were slightly stressed. But it's the stress that improved the terpenes, not the organics per se. So now we look at refining it. So that's that's why I call this precision stress rather than just, just general stress. It's just the right amount of stress in the right way at the right time. So when I, I've no doubt people have done studies like this. When I say people and studies, I mean growers have done a comparison. That's a better way to put it. And they might have seen more terpenes. And often, if if they don't are not have a background in the scientific method, they don't repeat the study. They just make one observation, and then they're sure that organic nutrients increase terpenes and they make announcements and they're just sure of it and boy can you get into trouble as a scientist if you make some announcement and you're wrong your reputation goes right in the toilet so all you ever say is the data indicates this and we've repeated it four times and here's the here's the difference we also can say here's the mechanism by which this happens not just an observation um, one of the analogies I've used sometimes is uh, planting at the full moon. And 100 years ago in agriculture, that was a thing. You should plant at the full moon. You'll, you'll get better yields. And of course, that's been studied. And what's the mechanism of that? You know, there is no mechanism. But probably what it was is people could see better at the full moon. So they've got the spacing right. But there wasn't, there's no mechanism for a value of planting at the full moon. So because there's no mechanism, we think the observations are just random chance. Well said. Another thing I often hear is people say that synthetic fertilizers kill off all microbes. When you feed in synthetic nutrients, you're wiping out your microbe populations. Are microbes killed with synthetic fertilizers or is that another thing that the data doesn't really back it up yet? No, they're not. And, and of course, I want to make this point. I think most people know this, but I want to make the point. Organic fertilizers break down to the same exact elements that synthetic fertilizers provide. So chemically, there's no difference at all. They, they aren't taken up by the plants until they're degraded to the elements. Nitrate, nitrate ammonium, phosphate, the exact same elements. So if, if you put 
a ton of fertilizer on, I mean, some cup per plant of synthetic fertilizer, you would kill the plant and you, would, you wouldn't kill the microbes because they're really hardy, but you would sure shift the microbial population if you, if you over fertilize it just because of the salt stress. Um, so now you can see where I'm going with this stuff. What's the mechanism? What's the mechanism? But certainly if the fertilization is near optimal, there's, there could be a equally be a beneficial effect on microbes as a detrimental effect. Um, microbes have to have a source of energy and that source of energy is usually some organic carbon. Um, I mean, in a, in a simplest case, you could just put some sugar on the soil and the microbes would go wild. You'd, you'd have a huge flush of microbes. And, and you say, well, that's too much. But how about we just take compost and partially degraded compost and put it in there? That will stimulate microbial activity. Now, whether that also stimulates plant growth is another matter. It would not necessarily stimulate plant growth. But that's the opposite of synthetic fertilizers. Synthetic fertilizers don't have organic matter in them. They're, they're just the elements. And uh, organic fertilizers, because they have organic compounds in them, will stimulate microbial activity. And, and generally, as a general rule, that's a good thing. You want healthy microbial activity in the soil. But so does root turnover. A big plant stimulates microbial activity because you have a lot of roots and the roots turn over and microbes thrive on the decaying roots of an older plant. It's a long answer, but the, the short answer is no. There's no relationship between synthetic fertilizers and uh, killing the microbes. Got it. That makes sense. Let's flip it up. Let's talk about soil versus soilless media. So another trend is growing in soil. You know, many growers work towards feeding the soil instead of feeding the plants, so relying on micro and macroorganisms to work in the soil, ultimately resulting in the plant receiving nutrition that way. On the other hand, one could argue that soilless media has more benefits. It is a media more optimized for growing medicinal plants. Can you talk to us about the benefits of soilless media you know, porosity, water holding capacity, cation exchange capacity, things like that. Yeah, interestingly enough, this is another active area of our research for NASA. <laughs> How are we going to grow plants on Mars? You know, are we going to haul Earth soil to Mars? Well, no, way too heavy. And we we also are not going to grow, and at least initially, we're not going to grow in Mars soil. It's really a fine sand is, is what's up there. It's not really, soil means it has microbial activity, it's living. And so what we call Mars is regolith, it's sterile and it's, it's sterile sand. All right, so how do we turn that into a healthy, vibrant thing to, to uh, feed a Mars colony? So that, that research has implications for Earth. Well, we could do liquid hydroponics which we do a lot of in, in the lab here, no media at all, just deep flow hydroponics, roots and water. And that is the ultimate in precision fertilization because you can change nutrients on a dime and you know exactly what's happening, but it's not buffered. Something goes wrong, your, your plants can be dead in a hurry. 
So then we move to soilless media. And this can be rock wool, could be coconut choir, it can be peat, many different things. Um, but rock wool, coconut choir, and peat are really the big three that, that most people use. Um, that's better buffered. So if you missed an irrigation, your plants wouldn't be dead. It has, that can store some nutrients. Um, that primary, and, and it can have a robust microbial community in it too, particularly peat and coconut choir, because those are made out of organic products to start with. Rock wool is a little different because that's just glass fibers. There's no organic matter in rock wool. And this then gets to a concept called cation exchange capacity, which the, the listeners, if they get interested in this, please apply to Utah State University for a degree in plant science. You'll learn all this stuff in great detail. And, and if you're interested in plants, you'd love coming here. We'd love to have you as a, as a student here in our plant science department. You take whole classes in what we're talking about right now. So Rockwell doesn't have any cation exchange capacity, which means there's no buffer. If you miss a fertilization, the nutrients are gone. They washed out of the pot. Coconut choir and especially peat have a, a reservoir of nutrients. The cations are bound to the media and it buffers it. If you put too much on, it soaks up the excess. If you have too little, it desorbs back to the media. So now we're moving from straight liquid culture, which can be very precise but fragile, to soilless media, which is better buffered and uh, for the long term. And then the third category would be soil, which is your original question. What about soil? Just go dig up field soil. And then and we're going to make it really nice. We'll put lots of compost in there. That That's a fine media. But when it's in a container, it's very tricky to keep it watered. It's very easy to overwater it and flood it. And so you have a tall container to help it drain. Um, but that's why traditional field soils are not generally used in containers because it's so easy to flood the plants. It, it's possible to grow in them. And we do all the time because we're doing studies to predict field responses. But you sure have to be careful about watering and the microbial activity is determined by the amount of food in the container for the microbes, um, the amount of organic carbon that they can eat, that they can utilize for energy. Um, and soil has some organic carbon, but peat is all organic carbon. So the microbial activity is not necessarily higher in soil than it is in soilless media. Another long answer, I'm sorry. But after you teach this stuff for 40 years, you're, you you start to get into it. I love it. The more information, the better. Our, our viewers really like, you know, detailed answers to the point, the science behind things. So, yeah, I love it. Keep them coming. <laughs> now, in another one of your lectures, you talk about feeding different types of nitrogen, ammonium and nitrate. And you came across some interesting results when feeding a balance of the two. Can you talk to us about what that study was about and your findings there? First of all, 
in the field, we virtually always have a, a both forms of nitrogen. We, we always do, and, and in some balance. Um, and, and often, as organic matter decays, the first form of, of nitrogen is ammonium, which is NH4 plus. It's a, it's a cation. Um, and in forests, that's the dominant form of nitrogen that's feeding the plants. That de decomposes to nitrate, NO3 minus, and that's a microbially mediated transformation. It's, it's called nitrification. And there's two different organisms. It's very cool to take a whole class in this that do this. You know, they work in tandem to change ammonium to nitrate. But in the field, plants almost always get both forms. And we've really long known they're, they're synergistic. Um, one's a cation, one's an anion. They help the plants achieve what's called charge balance because you have to have an equal number of cations and anions. They stabilize pH right in the rhizosphere. The rhizosphere is right next to a root. They stabilize that pH. So as a general rule, we have found that about 80% nitrate and 20% ammonium keeps a very stable pH in the root zone. When I say about that, that could be plus or minus 10%, depending on the conditions. Um, but if we feed all nitrate, the pH goes up, 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 and that's not good. If we feed too much ammonium, the pH goes down, 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 and that's not good either. So this roughly 80-20 balance helps the pH stay stable right at the root surface. And it, for all the crops we've studied, it leads to a healthier plant and faster growth. Super interesting stuff there, for sure. I got an environment question for you. So we know that it's not so much the temperature of the environment, but the leaf surface temperature, which is impacting the rate of photosynthesis. Now, I often hear that it depends on the plant you're growing and the genetics. But generally speaking, 82 degrees Fahrenheit leaf surface temperature is optimal. Is there any truth to that or what's your take on that? I tell my students the correct answer to every question I'm going to ask you is it depends. <laughs> and so I'm starting with it depends. Okay, now what does it depend on? Um, but let's just take leaf temperature and air temperature first, just as not the optimum, but just what's the difference. A worst case scenario would be a cactus in the desert. It's no water and the sun is shining on the cactus and the surface of the cactus can be, oh, 20, it could be 20 degrees Celsius above air temperature. Easily tense, and that you double after Fahrenheit. So 20 to 30 degrees Fahrenheit above air temperature of a cactus in the desert, way different than air temperature. But now let's take the opposite a well-watered plant in, in agriculture with a healthy root system. So now let's say, are the leaves warmer than the air or cooler than the air? Now, most people would say, well, duh, the sun's shining on the leaves. They're always warmer than the air. But what if we took a wet dish rag and hung it on the line? It's, it's soaking wet and it's evaporating real fast, 
would that dish rag be warmer than the air or equal to the air temperature or cooler? And it turns out the dish rag will be cooler than air temperature if it's a low humidity environment. Low humidity means less than 50%. So leaves are not necessarily always hotter than the air. It depends on how watered, how well watered the plants are and what the humidity of the air is. Sometimes they're cooler than the air. Now let's take wind. What if the, we have good wind speed? And we almost always have good wind speed. We'd like the leaves to be fluttering like this. So what that means is the leaves cool, either warm up or cool off, so they're even closer to air temperature. So we have a, we have a manuscript on this, um, a model with leaf temperatures and, and different kinds of lights, different conditions, and it's, it's a validated model. But well over 90% of the time, the leaves are within, in Fahrenheit, they're within three degrees Fahrenheit of air temperature. So it's not a wildly different temperature for, for start, starters. If, if you think, well, boy, we got to control temperature because that'll be way different than the air. It is different, but not a lot different. So that's why we get away with measuring air temperature and predicting plant performance from that because the leaves are close to the air temperature in a well-watered plant. What if the plant runs out of water, the stomates close, transpiration goes down, now the leaves heat up. It's, you know, three, four, five, six degrees above air temperature. But in that case, we got another problem with it. They ran out of water. <laughs> if we don't want them to do that, we you fix the problem. Um, so now we're on to the second part of your question. What is the optimal temperature? Let's just say the leaves are at the same temperature as the air all the time. What temperature should that be? For if the carbon dioxide is not enriched, it's just ambient, plants have what's called photorespiration. They, they have trouble distinguishing carbon dioxide and oxygen. And at ambient CO2, that means the temperature optimum is lower. And it depends on the crop, but often in the low 20s, well, it's in Celsius, in the uh, low 70s Fahrenheit um, is an optimum temperature without CO2 enrichment. Now we elevate the CO2, which we do all the time for plants um, in controlled environments. And we're spoon feeding the plants carbon dioxide, which is what they want for photosynthesis. And to make a lot of biochemistry simple, now they can go faster because they got ample CO2 so we can raise the temperature. And that temperature gets into the 80s Fahrenheit. Um, so it, it's at least a 5 to 10 degree Fahrenheit increase in optimum temperature if the CO2 is elevated. So there's another interaction with uh, CO2. Now I've now that we said all of this, which is a whole bunch of stuff all at once, what really matters about temperature is the flower bud temperature, not the leaf temperature. And those flower buds don't 
transpire as much as the leaves. It's a, it's a clump of tissue. Flower buds can heat up well above air temperature. And we, when we look at optimum conditions, we really ought to be looking at flower bud temperatures more than leaf temperatures because we, we see it all the time. They'll, they'll heat up easily five degrees Fahrenheit above air temperature when the flower bud gets bigger, when it's closer to harvest, just because it's a big, it's a, a clump of tissue as opposed to a nice thin leaf, which can stay close to air temperature. Wow, some really good information there. I didn't know that about the flower temperature. So that, that's it's good in, stuff. It's in, yeah, there's a, there's a big discussion of that in one of our manuscripts. If, if you really want to dig into it, those manuscripts are written for other scientists, so they can be tricky to read, but those discussions are certainly in there. Awesome. Cool. Now I got some controversial questions for you. Like I mentioned before we started recording, uh, most of my audience is on the home grow side of, side of things. And there's a lot of things that people do in order to try to get a better result. So, uh, for example, some growers will put their plants in a period of darkness before harvest. For example, 48 hours of darkness or 72 hours of darkness, then they'll harvest. It's said that the darkness period is when secondary metabolites are formed and trichomes fall into that category. So giving your plant a period of darkness will either allow the plant to produce more trichomes and or allow the terpenes and cannabinoids to become more potent. What's your take on that? Is leaving your plant in a period of darkness before harvesting beneficial at all? That's one of those things I'm going to say we don't have any evidence that that helps. But now let's back up to the theory. When we say trichomes, or terpenes, are, and maybe trichomes are formed at night, that's not correct. They're, they're synthesized out of the energy from photosynthesis. The photosynthetic energy makes sugars, especially sucrose, and that sucrose is used to make the terpenes, makes the, the trichomes as well. So if we put the plants in the dark, we're taking away their energy source to synthesize terpenes. So we haven't specifically done these studies here, but my colleagues in other places have. And as a general rule, the terpenes are less when they're in the dark because they're respiring away all the sugar. They can't make new terpenes because they're out of energy. So my recommendation to, to growers, and this is based on principles and what I think are best practices, keep the lights on now, right, right to the end. And there is even some people that go to 24 hours of light because of they don't need to trigger any more reproductive development. They just want to push the plant hard. That's the other extreme, the opposite. Um, but cool temperatures can reduce the volatilization, which is the evaporation of terpenes. And if they're in the dark and cold, now the cold temperature might help. It's not the dark, but it's the cold temperature. So there could be some evidence for keeping the plants, keeping the lights on, but reducing the temperature. And if I had to go off a of mechanistic studies, that's what I would recommend, reduce the temperature. But then you're reducing the development of the plant. And if it's cold, it doesn't synthesize new terpenes as fast. So it's, it's not clear to me that the coldness would really help 
It would help preserve terpenes, but it would not help the plant synthesize new terpenes. And the fact that we're smelling the plant at all, which you do, that means the terpenes are coming off. <laughs> That's what makes the, the smell in the first place. Um, but I think we ought to put more emphasis on continued synthesis of terpenes right to the last day of harvest and less, evident, less emphasis on doing something to preserve what's already there. I think that information is going to open up a lot of people's eyes. That's uh, You definitely mentioned some things that I wasn't aware of. And I think that really provides a lot of information in regards to those folks that are in belief of that happening, kind of give some background and some science to refute that one. So uh, thanks for sharing now, that. Now, Chris, let me add to this. Um, right at the moment of harvest, now you clip the plant. Now there's not more photosynthesis. It's starting to dry out. And, and now you can cool it off to try and preserve terpenes during curing of the plant. But that's different because once you clip it, it's starting to dry out. And within hours, photosynthesis, stomates close right away. Photosynthesis is minimal. So, but, but the question was right before harvest, not right after. So. Gotcha. So another technique that's often done by gardeners growing with synthetic fertilizers is flushing or leaching before harvest. Organic growers generally don't do this, but many synthetic growers are adamant that a flush is needed prior to harvest in order to reduce the amount of chlorophyll, ultimately leading to a bit faster of a cure and a better tasting final product. What's your take on flushing or leaching before harvest when using synthetic fertilizers? Certainly lots of growers do this. So it's a common practice, um, but that just because it's common doesn't mean it's correct. Um, if the plant was over fertilized, and sometimes we over fertilize on purpose to get some osmotic stress, some salt stress, then there's the potential for flushing out the excess nutrients and that helps the plant take up more water. That it, um, it's hard for the plant to get water out of salty soil. <laughs> and, and if there's excess nutrients, that's all salts. So you get rid of the excess and now it's just more pure water and it, the plant can hydrate better. So it, that's, there's a case where flushing has the potential to be helpful. But if there were no excess nutrients right up to the end of the growth cycle, I don't see any mechanism that flushing would help. Now, in that case, it's a, it's a stress. It's a, you're, you're getting, let's take nitrogen. You, you need nitrogen to make chlorophyll. You, you get rid of the nitrogen, chlorophyll synthesis would start to go down, but that's a slow process. The plant has to exhaust all of the stored nitrogen in itself, because plants store nitrogen, they store nitrate in vacuoles, and that can take at least several days, if not a, a week, to exhaust that. Uh, so I, I don't see a, a mechanistic link between the value of flushing and, and product quality if the plant didn't have excess nutrients in the first place. And it's interesting you mentioned organic growers usually don't do that, well, maybe they didn't have any excess nutrients. <laughs> they had just the right amount, so why would you go less than that? Um, 
Chlorophyll's interesting. People don't realize that the half-life of a chlorophyll molecule in a plant is two days. Plants are always making new chlorophyll. It does a lot of work. It breaks down to make new chlorophyll. So at the moment of harvest, the chlorophyll starts breaking down. And, in, and a half-life means half of it's gone in two days. So there's plenty of opportunity to get rid of chlorophyll right after harvest during the curing process. And in fact, that's a big part of curing. Just the right speed, just you want some things to break down. For sure, you want the, to get rid of excess water so you can store it. But it, anyway, that's another topic, the, the curing side of things. The quick answer is, with, with some rare exceptions, I don't see the value of flushing before harvest. Now, some growers that we've worked with have tried it both ways, and they it doesn't prove anything except in their operation, they didn't see a value of flushing. This was a pretty big grower that had been flushing, and I said, we don't have any evidence that helps. And, and they said, okay, we'll try it both ways. And they found it didn't matter. Interesting. You definitely changed my stance on flushing a little bit. And there's some things that you mentioned that I wasn't aware of. So that's definitely good stuff there. Now, moving right along to drying and curing. Have you done any studies on drying and curing that you can talk to us about? There, yes. And we're about to do a lot more. Um, particularly, most of our studies have been rate of drying. Um, you, you can dry plants in two days and you can dry them in two weeks, the flower buds. Um, and that, to me, the word drying applies to the rapid loss of water that occurs in the first 24 hours after harvest. The plants are full of water and botrytis, for example, can go wild on a flower that's got plenty of water in it. And the way we get rid of botrytis and all the other microbes that can grow on the flower is just to dry it out. So, the, so we dry it fast and, and maybe 24 hours. Now I'm using the term 24 hours, not one day, because this stuff is hour by hour. Maybe it's 12 hours, maybe it's 16, maybe it's 28 hours, but you wanna set your stopwatch and watch this stuff dry fast. You don't, we don't wanna over dry it but we want to get it dry enough so the microbe, microbial counts are low. That's a very big deal. Plenty of places for microbes to grow in a flower. Then we cure it. And so now I use the term curing for a real slow loss of water that happens over many days and two weeks. Um, two weeks is about as long as I've seen people curing. Um, chlorophyll degrades, additional water is lost. You're trying to preserve the terpenes, trying to keep those in the flower. The cannabinoids aren't going anywhere. They're, they don't evaporate. They're, they're, they get concentrated because you're losing water, but you're not losing cannabinoids. Um, and we, we talk about the water activity of the flower and that's water activity is a number between zero and one. One is fully hydrated, like right when it's growing, the water activity is probably 0.99. You harvest, two days later it starts to dry out and then the water activity is 0.8. Now, 
at a water activity of 0.8, not many microbes can keep growing. You've, you've gotten rid of 95% of the microbes, but some can still grow with real low water activity. So we take it from water activity of 0.8 down to 0.6, and at 0.6, microbes can't grow, it's too dry. Um, and now you can, when it's fully cured, the middle of the flower is dry, the edge of the flower is dry. Now you can put that bud in a jar and keep it for a long, long time. It's too dry for microbes to grow. Um, so that's that's separating drying and curing for the uh, plants. And you would think we would learn a lot from the tobacco literature, right? We've been growing tobacco for 100 years, and we talk about curing tobacco. And I'm, I'm a bit surprised there's not as much literature on precision curing of tobacco as you might think. And maybe part of it's because it's done by private companies and, and they try to keep their curing methods confidential. But it's the same thing, but curing anything, um, any, any medicinal plants. Um, how, do we, how do we take basil and make dried basil? That's the same thing. We want that basil to be really flavorful and, and aromatic and still dry. So you can put it in a jar and ship it around to people. We can learn a lot about curing from other types of food products because the principles are all the same. Got it. Got it. It's definitely some good stuff there. Let's flip it up. Let's talk about lighting. So I'd say most of my audience is familiar with PAR, PPFD, PPF. But DLI is something that I think a lot of people are getting tripped up on. Can you talk to us about DLI and what's optimal for medicinal plants? The word, so DLI is daily light integral. And once you get this, then you can say that you understand calculus because it's an integral. <laughs> and calculus is a pretty scary word. Um, but integral is just an adding things up over the day. And a really good analogy that I have used and my colleagues use it too, is a rain gauge. You go out and check your rain gauge at the end of the day and you don't really care when it rained, you just care how much it rained. And let's say you got an inch of rain, that's the rainfall integral for the day. And, and now you imagine a tray out there with raindrops falling into it. And we don't care if it rained hard for a while and light for a while. At the end of the day, we care how, what's the total amount of rain. And it's the same thing with photons coming in. We measure PPF, PPFD, PAR in per second. Okay, but that's the plant says, I want to know how much I'm going to get per day, not per second. So we add it up. And that results in the number called the daily light integral. And those numbers outside range from, oh, five. Well, first of all, we talk about micromoles per meter squared per second for instantaneous light, PPF and PPFD, and you add them up and those, all those micromoles become moles. So it's moles per meter squared per day. And that's daily light integral, the unit of that. And at a low end in the winter, we might get five moles per meter squared per day. 
and a sunny day in the summer, we get 60 moles per meter squared per day. Wow, what a huge difference. And with electric lights, you got to have a lot of electric lights even to get to 30 moles per meter squared per day. 30 will grow fine, um, but we got a lot of evidence you can still keep increasing yield up to 60 moles per meter squared per day, and that's a lot of lights to get to 60. That's the concept of daily light integral, and it's worth it to become familiar with it. I, because of this, my company, the company I started, Apogee Instruments, makes a series of products to measure daily light integral. It just sits there and adds up all the photons, and at the end of the day, it gives you a, a number for this. And you got to have a microprocessor in the sensor to do that, and we haven't had many instruments to do that in the past, but, but um, oh, I don't know. If you typed in daily light integral and Apogee, you would find these uh, sensors. And there are also calculators online. If somebody's new to DLI, you could type in DLI calculator and just kind of get an idea. You type in what the PPFD is and then the number of light hours and press the calculate button. It will tell you what your DLI is. So it makes things pretty easy having a calculator. Yes, good, good point. Yep. Now, I believe you did a study about replicating the natural sunlight by starting the lights on a lower setting, then increasing the output over a period of an hour or two, and then dimming the light gradually before lights off versus just hitting the plants with full power lights all the way until the lights turn off. If I remember correctly, the plants took the full power just fine. There wasn't really a benefit to gradually increasing the light. Is that correct? Can you talk to us about that study? Yeah, that actually was a study by a colleague um, at the University of Illinois, Don Geiger. He wasn't working with uh, medical hemp. He was he was working with other crops, um, and it, it's you're right. He he looked at ramping it up slowly and ramping it down slowly. But then, and I have talked about his study. I've met him, and we've he he and I have discussed his research at length. But what we have done is measure photosynthesis one minute to the next. And we take these plants that are sleeping in the dark and boom, we turn on the lights and they get to full brightness in under a minute. How fast do the plants wake up and get going? And it takes several minutes <laughs> for them to get going, but it doesn't take several hours and which is an interesting analogy to people. You know, you think, I like to get up and have coffee. I got my slippers on, you know, don't ask me to do hard math right after I wake up. I got to ramp up into the day. But at least plants we have studied, boy, can they ramp up fast. And in fact, their most productive period of the day is the first couple hours after the lights come on. So we, we, haven't, we don't have any evidence that it helps to ramp the light up slowly. And in fact, you lose the opportunity to give a lot of photons to the plants. If you just turn them on and leave them on, that's the results in the highest daily light integral for the plants. So that's what we recommend. We, we don't have any evidence that a slow ramping up or a slow decrease is helpful. That's good to know, for sure. I got kind of a loaded question for you next. Answer it however you'd like. But talk to us about your findings in regards to light spectrum and how it impacts plant growth. 
there's two parts of that. One is the effects of light spectrum on photosynthesis, and one the effects of light spectrum on plant shape or development. Um, we know a lot about photosynthesis, and within the last couple of years, we've had a huge breakthrough on that in, in my laboratory and in my colleague, uh, Mark Van Ersel's lab and, and Xu Yangjian, who's now at Texas A&M. We have very clearly found that far red photons cause photosynthesis. So now we're defining a new metric for, for light for plants, and it's called E par, lowercase e, and then par, and that means 400 to 750 nanometers. That range is photosynthetic. The old way was 400 to 700, um, but now we have 400 to 750. And of course, the companies are now making EPAR meters. Apogee makes an EPAR meter to include the far red photons. In that range, the red photons and the and are better than blue and about 30% better because blue photons get absorbed by pigments that aren't photosynthetic. Anthocyanins, carotenoids, they just they get absorbed and they don't cause photosynthesis. Um, but so, so that leads to colors of light for photosynthesis. We should include far red. But the bigger effects of light color and light quality are on plant shape. And they're on the synthesis of secondary metabolites. Um, if blue light shrinks plants, and if you want small compact plants, you want to give them more blue light. And, and this is why years ago, we used to give plants in veg light from metal halide lights, because it had a lot of blue light and the plants were nice and compact. And then we would switch to the more efficient high pressure sodium lights during flowering because they could get more light. Now this is now LEDs come along and most LED fixtures have low amounts of blue light because it's not as photosynthetic. The blue LEDs are not as efficient and, um, and that's fine. They, the plants don't need that much blue light to for uh, optimal photosynthesis. But um, the amount of blue light controls stem elongation and leaf expansion. And, and we're doing a lot of studies now in the minimum amount of blue light to uh, have, it, have a normal looking plant. And you know, down one and 2% blue photons. Um, if we give the plants far red photons, it significantly increases stem elongation. So we can shape the plants. And normally we don't want big, tall plants. We want smaller, compact plants, but not always. If we want airflow through the canopy, we want taller plants. But you can really control plant height with uh, light spectra. And you can even control how dense the flower buds are. If you want to have tight flower buds, you want more blue light. If you want it to be elongated more, you would give it more far red photons and then the flower bud gets a little bit more spaced out. And then now what's consumer preference? You know, what's the shape of the flower that people want to buy? We can control that with light spectra. This is a quick summary of a lot of stuff. <laughs>
For sure. I, the point that interested me the most was I wasn't aware that the blue light, how it impacts the density of the bud. Yeah, I was not aware of that. That's new information to me. That That's really good to know. Now, how about UV light? What's your findings there? People have said UV light will increase cannabinoids. And, and people, I mean, many growers. And they often cite a paper by a scientist. The first author is a guy named Lydon, L-Y-D-O-N. This was a paper about 30 years ago um, on the effects of blue light and cannabinoids. This was not for medical hemp. This was for photo protection from UV light from the sun. And Leiden only studied leaves and how much the leaves made. And they made very low levels of cannabinoids. His data were all in a few tenths of a percent in the leaves. He only studied vegetative plants, no flowers. One cultivar, there was no effect of UV light on cannabinoids. But in the other cultivar, there was an effect. And he said in his paper, the effect of UV light on cannabinoids is equivocal. Now let's you look up the word equivocal and it means uncertain, <laughs> unknown. We don't know. But everybody cites Leiden's paper as proof that UV light increases cannabinoids. And that's not what he found at all in his paper. And I would invite everybody to study his paper and read it carefully. So we have studied UV light and cannabinoids, and you, both UVB and UVA, and we've never been able to show a beneficial effect of UV on cannabinoids, at least for the cultivars we have studied. Now that we have our colleagues at the University of Guelph also published a paper on this, independent of our research, and they found the same thing as we did. So another research laboratory at another university finds the same thing as we do. Now, it doesn't mean we can't find exactly the right dose and the right wavelength that might be beneficial, but it is not going to be easy because we've tried multiple doses and multiple wavelengths, and we've just never seen a benefit in spite of the fact that UV should be triggering these photoprotective pigments. In theory, we think we should see an effect. In practice, we've never been able to show it. Wow, lots of good information there, for sure. One last thing I wanted to talk about, I know probably we're coming up close on time here, but one thing I wanted to bring up was talking about silica. You've done a ton of research when it comes to silica. I mean, I've watched your presentation that you had. There's a lot of information that you mentioned in there that's not really mentioned to the general public, from my understanding. Can you talk to us about some of your main findings with the research you've done with silica? Yes, silica is not essential, but that doesn't matter. It's very highly beneficial. And silica is what glass is made out of, silicon dioxide. Plants take up silica. They get lots of silica in the field soils. It's a natural element. And it it goes into cell walls and it makes them tougher. It makes It's like glass in the cell walls. And one of the big advantages that makes them more resistant to diseases, particularly powdery mildew. We can we give our plants real high silica and we almost have eliminated powdery mildew because of that. Um, there's lots of evidence that helps uh, plants become more resistant to insects as well, particularly the chewing insects. 
Um, so the challenge is how to how to get it in the root zone because it's not a very soluble element. Um, and we've been working on um, papers on how to increase it in liquid feed with a separate injector, and then also compounds that we, we can add to media to elevate um, silica in the media. So, but it's a but it's a very beneficial element. Um, especially because the trichomes are almost pure silica, and we want a lot of trichomes, and we want them tough. We want we don't want them to fall off. We don't want them to be fragile, and and silica helps with that. And in soilless media, no silica. That people add soil to get silica. Well, you can add it from silica fertilizers too, but so. Here we're moving to a thing with no silica, just at a time when we should be adding more. So it's a silica is a very underappreciated beneficial element, particularly for medical hemp. I'm glad that you brought up the fact that it, it strengthens the trichome because that's that's really one of the main things that nobody talks about, right? Its impact on the actual trichomes, and that's what we're aiming for, you know, when we're growing these medicinal plants. So great stuff there. I definitely recommend that everybody have silica in their feeding routine, right? So, uh, what new science has come out in the past year or so regarding these medicinal plants? Well, I think some of our threshold work recent work and also the, the near future is going to be the interaction between genetics and environment. Um, new strains, new cultivars, new chemotypes, and then new environments to optimize production. And when you think of the history of agriculture, half of our advances are genetics and half of our advances are environment. Better fertilization, better watering, but better genetics too. And that same thing is going to happen with uh, medical hemp, particularly as we get professional plant breeders involved that can do use, use molecular techniques. Um, um, here's an example. We all know that medical hemp, very labor intensive to harvest. You know, you're, you're trimming sugar leaves. It's just a lot of labor to get it just right. In field agriculture, we have bred plants to be easier to harvest. Tomatoes, I mean, we bred plants that the, the, right at harvest, the tomatoes break off the plant real easily. We could breed medical hemp to make it easier to harvest. There's, there's one example of, of, of many. We could breed medical hemp so it can take a 16 hour photo period. We can give it more light um, and get higher yields. Um, all of these things are, I think, they're in the near future. Uh, you, but you asked about the past, <laughs> the last couple of years. One big project of ours is um, phosphorus. Phosphorus is very interesting. The, the unfertilized flowers suck up a lot of phosphorus. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, do anything. It's, it's just excess phosphorus but they cannibalize phosphorus out of the leaves. And for that reason, medical hemp benefits from more phosphorus than most other crops, but not 10 times as much, maybe two times as much. So we're trying to get people to back off to precision fertilized with phosphorus, adequate phosphorus, but not excessive 
for all the reasons we talked about in the beginning. It's a, it's a bad environmental pollutant. And I'm waiting for companies to say, aren't medical hemp sustainably grown? We don't over-fertilize over with phosphorus. But we got to give them the data so they know how much is enough um, so, they, so they don't suffer from yield from inadequate phosphorus. Gotcha. Gotcha. So a lot of good stuff there. So I could go on and on and on and ask you more and more questions, but we're going to wrap things up here. Tell us, how can the listeners find you and what do you have upcoming in the future? We have, have lots of videos on the internet. We have taught, as you know, because you're in the class, but this is a university level course online and we, it's, it's about 50 lectures of all the stuff I've been talking about. So just expand it. Now, the first group of students in that class is, is it's, the class is now closed for um, registration. But we are already, because of an overwhelming response, we're already preparing a second edition of the course. Um, and it may be a more advanced edition of the course. But it's done with two colleagues um, and uh, recorded here in our recording studio. So the quality is high. And we're really gratified with all the people, all the good comments on that. Um, so that's, that's uh, I, I can say watch for more videos. Um, I, do, I do videos through Apogee Instruments. Um, I do some through the university. But those videos, I think, have been more effective than writing. Well, for the for the grower audience, they're a lot more effective than scientific papers, because those papers can get pretty dense. Um, you, you you need to have what's the, tell just tell me the bottom line from all this research. Makes sense. Well, I will leave a link to Dr. Bruce Bugby's YouTube channel, um, your Apogee YouTube channel. I'll leave that down in the description section below. Also, any other links that we mentioned, we mentioned that organic study. That'll be linked down in the description section below as well. Uh, if you enjoyed this video, click that thumbs up button, share. I know there's lots of people out there that would want to know about this information, so please share it, whether it be on Reddit or Facebook pages, forums, so on and so forth. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Every single weekend, I'm releasing these podcast episodes. So hit the subscribe button on YouTube, or if you're on one of the podcast platforms, particularly Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating and review. We're coming up to 200 ratings and reviews so far. Super proud of that. Thank you to everyone who has left a rating and review so far. Well, Dr. Bruce Bugby, this has been an honor to have you on here. I am so thankful that you came on here and shared this information. Uh, I know my audience is going to love it. It's so valuable and appreciate your time. Well, consider becoming a, one of our students here at Utah State University. We'd love it. Lots of good questions. Thanks for all those good questions. Thank you. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day.